following the news this week or on social media, we've seen this week the power of song throughout the world. Songs are powerful. And if you've seen the people on their uh, porches in Italy singing songs and the numerous artists who've chosen to take to live stream concerts, they've provided such comfort and solace in a time where people are anxious and unsure of themselves. And yet God has given us a songbook that captures the experiences of his people and reminds us of who he is. And it joins us with God's people over history who have sung these songs. And as Bono has wisely said, have been sung by these songs. Some of these songs sing us. As we read them, we see our hearts revealed, laid bare. We see God's love. And then we see ultimately, as one of my professors said, that Jesus is the supreme singer of these songs. And so this morning, we're going to come before God in prayer and then listen to one of these songs together and see what it has to tell us about who God is. So would you join me now in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gift of song. We thank you that in your wisdom, you gave us songs written by your people, capturing all of the experiences we have as your creatures. And we pray, Lord, that you would use these songs over these weeks to console us, to lift us up, to help us to see your son more clearly, that we might see the hope that we have in him. And so would you be with us in this time as we read your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We are going to be looking this morning at Psalm 4, right at the beginning of this altar. And so follow along with me in Psalm 4. We're going to read the entire psalm. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. All God's people say. Some scholars believe that this psalm was written when David was on the run from Absalom. It doesn't say that in the liner notes, but if you look at the psalm that precedes it, Psalm 3, it does say that this is when he fled. And the reason some scholars have made this connection is kind of like Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. When you read those psalms, there's this refrain that's repeated. Um, Why are you so downcast, my soul? Hope in God. And it's repeated in these both psalms. And so some scholars believe those were once one song. And similarly, if you read Psalm 3 in verse 5, it says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And then in verse 8, we see here, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. 
And so the thought is that in the morning and at night, David sang this song. These are the prayers that he offered up to God in the midst of fleeing from Absalom. And it's worth, before we dive into the text, just quickly summarizing what that season of David's life was like. If you remember, Absalom was his third son, and Absalom had a sister named Tamar. We heard about a different Tamar last week, but this Tamar was a virgin as well, and she was very beautiful. And Absalom's half-brother and Tamar's half-brother, Amnon, lusted after Tamar. And he planned uh, to rape her, and he did. And then he cast her aside. He refused to marry her. He was disgusted by her. And in the wake of that, Absalom waited for his father David to bring justice to what had, been ha- what had happened to Tamar, his sister, and to David's daughter. And time passed and nothing happened. So Absalom planned an attack and murdered Amnon when he invited him over to his house. And then he fled and hid for years, fearing that David would seek retribution. But oddly enough, after time, David longed for his son to come home and he was welcomed back. And when he was, because David was getting older and so consumed with all the drama in his, in his family, he was not attending to his people the way that he had in the past. And Absalom saw this as an opportunity. And he began to bring together a group of people that supported him and surrounded him. And he left telling David that he was going to fulfill a vow he had made to God in Hebron. And when he left, a coup began and all of the people that he had gathered around himself declared Absalom king. And so David now as an older man knows that his life is on the line and he's on the run. And so he leaves. He leaves Jerusalem. He leaves his palace. He leaves his people with a with a band of soldiers and here he is as an old man on the run again. Just as he was as a young man from Saul. And it's with that in mind that we come to this text and The verse that begins says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. What a powerful opening because if this is David on the run and an army is pursuing him to kill him, we have to remember that he's an older man. He's on the run again and he's weaker than he was when he was young and Saul was pursuing him. We know, right, as we get older, our muscles weaken, our immune systems weaken. We're not as sharp cognitively. And you would think David, as an older man, would spend all of his waking hours planning, strategizing. What should he be doing? Where should they go? How should they plan for Absalom's attack? But instead, we see that David begins and ends his day with prayer. Prayer is the first and last priority. It's not to plan a battle. It's not to strategize. It's to cry out to God. And that's so counterintuitive because think about our response in the past days of this crisis. It's action, right? Stock up on food, social distancing, stay at home, schools planning to offer education online, companies developing plans so that people can work from home. Do, do, do. And yet David reminds us, as children of God, we pray first and last and everything in between. Our course of action begins and ends with asking God for help and wisdom and peace. The word call here can be translated cry out. 
David is running to God and crying out to him. He's pouring out his heart to his maker. And unsurprisingly, we know, right, that Jesus also was a man of prayer. Jesus begins his days in solitude, seeking his father in prayer. There's a long line of people waiting to be healed, and his disciples are anxiously looking for him, and he's off alone talking to God. That's the action plan. And Psalm 4 encourages us to be like David, to run to God and to cry out to him. And David immediately identifies in this verse why we can and should. He says, God of my righteousness. God alone declares his people righteous. God alone covers over our sins. We can't make ourselves right with God. He does this for us. And David notes past times when he's been rescued. He says, you've given me relief when I was in distress. David looks back on his life and he remembers God's faithfulness. This strengthens him. It gives him greater confidence to pray. Our faith, brothers and sisters, is not a blind faith. It's not based on wishful thinking. It's faith centered on a righteous and merciful God who acts in our lives and demonstrates his love for us. And you see, David doesn't need to see what's coming next because he knows God's character. And he has countless examples of God's grace in his life. Think for a moment about David's life as a young shepherd tending his sheep, bears and lions coming to threaten the, the lives of his sheep and his life as well. And time and time again, God rescuing him and enabling him to defeat these animals that threatened his stock. Think about Goliath facing the largest man in the Philistines' army and with a rock in a sling defeats this giant. Think about Saul, an anointed king and yet on the run from the, the current king with his life on the line. And now David, as an old man, finds himself on the run. God has led him his whole life. And so David prays not with confidence in his prayers, but with confidence in the God whom he prays to. So can I encourage us, Grace Point, to be like David and turn to the one that we can be certain about. Take time to reflect on his faithfulness to you, to us as a church. Think about this season that we've just gone through and God's faithfulness in watching over us and providing for us. Think about the small and big ways God has faithfully watched over you. If you're a late convert like me, stop for a moment and think about what God took you out of. Imagine this crisis now, facing it without the hope that we have in Christ. If you were blessed enough to stay and be raised a Christian, think about all of the things God has protected you from. I often think about that with Courtney. Our lives are so different. The movies we watch, the things that we've done, so different. And God has protected her eyes, her heart, from so many things because she was raised in a home that pointed at her Christ from the very beginning. These are the things we need to think about in the midst of what's going on around us. We may find ourselves in a new situation, but we are not with a new God. He is the same God that remains faithful and gracious and righteous. And he loves us. So let's go to him with confidence, knowing that he wants to hear from us. You know, it's hard to convince people of the power of prayer, 
but you'll never know it until you try it. And I was reading this week about C.S. Lewis has this amazing reflection on the efficacy of prayer. And he talked about having this speaking engagement in London and a friend that had a barbershop in London. And so he plans to go get his haircut before he has this prearranged meeting. And then the first piece of mail that he opens that day is actually a letter that lets him know he doesn't need to go to London anymore. It's not going to happen. And yet all morning he feels this pressing in, in, in his heart, go to London, go to London, get that haircut, get that haircut. And so he goes, he goes and gets the haircut. And when he opens the door to the barbershop, the barber looks at him with such relief and such joy and said, I was praying that you would come today. And the very thing he needed to wrestle with, with C.S. Lewis, would not have been able to happen had C.S. Lewis come in a week or even a day later. And Lewis says, prayer moves us from knowing things about God to knowing God himself. And so I encourage us, Grace Point, to run to God in prayer now. The second thing I want us to see from the psalm is that in David's crying out, he shifts his attention, right, to the immediate circumstances. Um, there are those first that have risen up against him. So if this psalm was indeed written when he's running from Absalom, David is addressing the men who've abandoned him. Now they're following his son. Men who once followed him are now following Absalom. They trusted him and they respected him and they left him to follow his son. And notice the question he asks of them. He says, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? The people surrounding Absalom see an opportunity for themselves. Let's get in early with the good guy, the new guy. Let's make friends with the new king. And David urges them to stop and consider their actions. They see an opportunity to better themselves. And David urges them to turn from their errors and from these lives to the truth. And in the midst of our current crisis, don't we see similar behaviors, right? The guy that purchased 17,000 bottles of sanitizer, hoping to make a lot of money quickly on Amazon, right? There's been a rise in phishing emails and phone calls with people promising fake cures to COVID-19. People see an opportunity and they're taking it. And others are scrambling to believe those lies. They're trying to find hope in the lies that are being sent to them. But yet with deceitful people around David, he can rest. Not only because he knows who God is, but because he knows who he is. You see, David is still king over Israel, even though he's not in his palace. He sees his office and the conviction that it's God that put him in that office that gives him peace. He's reminded of the deep love that God has for him. And he's able to look back at the covenant that God has made with his family, that someone will always be on his throne. And he's reminded how God sees him. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. This language of the godly is a, the particular, the special love that God has for those he has called to himself. You could translate it, the Lord has set apart the saints for himself. David knows he belongs to God, and he knows God hears his prayers. But today, for us, this verse is even more comforting because of Jesus. You see, David's looking to his office. He's looking to this covenant made with his house. But we're in a new covenant made in and through Jesus' perfect life, sealed by his blood, guaranteed by his resurrection. 
Like John, we can say, see what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. We're sons and daughters of God in Christ. He's chosen us and adopted us. We're forever his. And despite our circumstances, despite our sins, despite our actions, good or bad, we're God's beloved. And we can call him Father, something David couldn't do. It's a great encouragement. And if you're in a season of doubting, this is a time where people could start to have really dark thoughts about their own sins, their own shortcomings, their own failings. Remember the context of this song. This disaster is happening to David because of his sin with Bathsheba. David committed great sins, idolatry, lust, right, murder. Yet, he can come to God with boldness and with assurance because he knows that God's love is not dependent on his good behavior or his right choices. It's solely by the unearned grace and mercy and love of God for him. So the first group that David addresses is those who have risen up against him. But the next, David turns to those who actually trust in God. Right? In verse, he says, um, be angry and do not sin. Right? Those who haven't walked away. Those who haven't sought after lies. And he identifies another issue we face in the midst of hardship. And that's the temptation that we experience to sin. David says, be angry and do not sin. Now, in this context, maybe the people surrounding David, those who have been loyal to him, are frustrated with the actions of those who have abandoned their king. And they feel bitterness or maybe even hatred toward their fellow Israelites. Maybe even bitter towards God for allowing this to happen in the first place. You know, Paul, when we were going through Ephesians, he directly quotes this verse in chapter 4 of the, Ephesian, uh, the book to the Ephesians, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, where he says, be angry and do not sin. It was when Pastor Tom preached about urging the church not to lie or to steal or to give Satan an opportunity. And isn't that true for us? That in times of suffering and distress, we might experience temptation in a deeper, more powerful way. And this can take so many different forms. Maybe it's anger like in this passage. If you watch the news reports of those teenagers in Florida, person after person defying the, the advice of our government and you're angry with them for the other people they may be endangering and it's turning from righteous anger into hatred or maybe the anger is the form of being in close contact with your spouse and your kids for an extended period of time that you're not used to and you find yourself lashing out at them maybe you've been tempted to drink more to cope with your anxiety Maybe it's lust. Pastor in New York City tweeted this week, Folks, if you need porn filters and accountability during this screen immersion, get on it. I've been using Covenant Eyes for ages now. A lot of us are on our social media constantly, and the temptation to use those devices maybe for other things might be greater than ever. But whatever your struggle, when we're anxious, the temptation to give in to those things grows because our temptations provide and promise some relief, right? But David is saying, turn away from those. He's saying those things will not lead us to the path of life. They won't bring the deep joy, the deep rescue that we're seeking from them. He says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. 
David is encouraging the faithful. He's saying, stop, reflect on your hearts, reflect on our feelings, reflect on our struggles, and let's turn to God and place our trust in him. I was talking to a friend of some of you, Dan Hong, this week, and he was saying that this has totally stopped and paused his life. He just started seminary down in Washington, D.C., and he said it's caused him to stop and reflect on where he is, on who he is, on what's going on. Will you let this disruption allow you to stop and examine your heart and come before God anew, renewing or better yet deepening your trust in him? God is sovereign over this crisis, and he's allowed everything in the world to be paused. We're invited to ponder in a world where we're never given the time to ponder. It's an unprecedented time, working from home, kids not at school, sporting events canceled, a time we don't normally have is being given to us. And so the question for us is, what are we going to do with it? We have access to friends and family via Skype and FaceTime or at our kitchen tables and living rooms. Who is God putting before us? What does he want to do with us and in us? Who and what is he placing on your heart? How many of us struggle to do quiet time, family devotions, struggle to pray daily, time to be with our children for any meaningful amount of time? not being able to connect with others who are important to us, but far away. Let's not waste this time or allow it to be used to give into temptations that will never satisfy us. Let's pause and let's rest and let's come before God and trust that he's gonna lead and carry us. Now you might be wondering when he says here, right, offer sacrifices, right sacrifices, right? What does that look like in a time when the greatest and final sacrifice has already been made in Christ. And so I think what we need to see here is that we're being invited now as our union to Christ unfolds to share with Christ in his suffering. We're invited into this fellowship of his suffering. And right now, sacrifices are to turn to God in his word. It's to reach out to one another. It's to lift one another up in prayer. It's to see what people's needs are. This is a time where we're able to see him meet our needs and he's gonna enable us to meet others' needs. And that leads us to the next point. David ends with a reminder of where our deepest joy is to be found. With everything on pause, are we not being confronted this week with where we really find joy? Think about it. Most of the good things we enjoy, most of the things that we take for granted have been taken away from us this week. Last Saturday, we lived close to the Willow Grove Mall. The Cheesecake Factory parking lot was packed, booming. Restaurants packed with people, socializing, drinking, now takeout only. We can't escape our kitchens to eat out. Pause. Our distraction, our endless source of joy, especially if you're from Philly, our sports teams postponed indefinitely. Last weekend, it was Disturbing, they were playing the NCAA tournament from 2016 as if that could ever be a replacement for March Madness. Sports are paused. Schools are closed. Many of us are forced to work from home. That time alone that we covet, taken away. Pause. Films like No Time to Die, what an appropriate title for the next James Bond movie. 
and Mulan are not being released right now in the theater. We can't escape to other worlds in a darkened theater. Pause. What are we going to do? David is cast out of his palace. He's on the run. He's eating in haste. He's apart from all the comforts of being in Jerusalem, but yet he knows where the greatest good is. And as he hears the people around him crying out, right, who will show us some good, David asks God to lift up the light of his face upon his people. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Language that brings us back to Aaron. The blessing that I often and will today speak over us as God's people, right? Because throughout the Old Testament, the deepest hope of God's people with that was that God would reveal his face, his presence to his people by shining the light of his face upon them. The desire to be in God's presence fully and completely, right? Think about Moses' prayer, right? Lord, show me your glory. Let's join with David in asking God now to lift up the light of his face upon us. Let's lean into him in this season. So many of the things that comfort us, that distract us from seeking God have been removed. And we're being invited to see that it's God alone that we actually need. David compares the joy to the harvest season. And in an agricultural society like Israel, right, the harvest season was a time of joy and celebration, right? Families would gather to worship and feast, good food, good company. And David's saying that God's presence is so much greater. Think about your, your best Thanksgiving memory, your best holiday memory and he's saying it pales in comparison to the joy that God can give us the joy we experience in fellowship with him so let's come to God with a feeling of anticipation that he's going to show us more of himself in this season that because we'll have more of him we'll have deeper joy and the promise that he has made throughout has to be true because he alone is the greatest good he is the one that gives us all these other things, and he's inviting us now to taste and to see that he is good. As we're home, the temptation might be there to fill our time with TV or sleep or drink or leisure reading. And it made me think of the parable of the wedding feast, right, where God is inviting his people to this wedding, and everyone has something better to do. I'll do that later. I'm going to go watch the new season of Breaking Bad or the new season of Better Call Saul or the new season of The Walking Dead. I'm finally going to read those books I want to read. I'm going to be able to drink and not work because I could be like madmen. I could drink during the workday, right? Let's accept this invitation that God is giving us right now to come and be with him and feast upon him and upon his word and upon what it means to be with his people. And know that as a people united to Christ, we have the privilege of us shining the light of God's face on others especially in a time when the world is gripped with fear and anxiety. I've been anxious this week. I've been overwhelmed. I found myself last night weeping as I was laying next to Malachi because I don't know what the world is, is going to look like, but I know who God is. And it, my heart broke when I thought about all the people right now that don't know him. We feel anxious and weak, and yet we have the source of peace. They don't. So in the days and weeks to come, God is going to invite us to be the light of Christ. And we need to be with him and pouring into him and asking him to fill us so that we can answer that call. The psalm ends with this wonderful promise. It says, in peace 
I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David's a hunted man, but he knows God is with him. He knows he's safe because he's in God's hands, so he can lie down and sleep in peace. And the peace here, it's shalom. It's not just calm. It's a total, complete feeling of being whole. Everything is the way it's supposed to be, even though nothing is the way it's supposed to be for David. Because David belongs to God, he can not only lie down, he can sleep as well. And the Hebrew form here is really emphasizing these two things in tandem. It's, it's sleep that comes easy. It's sleep that as soon as you put your head on the pillow, you're out. It's the kind of sleep that I give thanks to God when Kai sleeps like this. Very rarely does he go down to his bed, hit, hit the pillow, and fall asleep. He's always wanting one of us to lay with him, wanting to play, wanting to listen to another song, wanting to eat another snack. But man, those nights where we've kept him so busy during the day that when he gets into the room, he wants to lay down because he knows sleep is going to be granted to him right away. Those are sweet. And this is what David says is ours. In this season, we have to remember the best is yet to come. And we know that because Jesus has gone before us. If you read over this psalm from 1 through 8, you see Jesus being the supreme singer of this psalm. Think about it. Jesus cried out to God, the truly righteous one. And then while we think about Gethsemane and we think about God not answering that prayer, we can forget that after he cried out to God, angels ministered to him. They strengthened him and enabled him to face the greatest challenge of his life. David in here speaks of vain lies. Jesus is falsely accused by the men that are entrusted to teach them about God. He's lied about. He's called a blasphemer. He's called a liar. They saw a threat to their power and they're grasping at their influence over listening to the Son of God. They hand him over to be whipped and beaten and crowned with thorns, a mockery to all the people. Who better than Jesus to cry out, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? And like a sheep before his shearers, David asks us to be silent. Jesus was silent before his accusers. He remained silent despite living the perfect life. And he was cursed as he prayed for their forgiveness. Jesus was nailed to the cross, denied the peace of God while he took upon his shoulders our sin, killed in our place, the perfect sacrifice for us. The people in the psalm are crying out, show us some good. And isn't it ironic? David says, show us your face, that people while Christ is on the cross shout out, if you're God, come down off that cross making fun of him, not realizing they were gazing upon the very face of God. But death did not hold him. And three days later, his glorious body would rise. He would be lifted up to heaven, united, and, and sending us um, the spirit so that we could be united to him. And it's because we belong to our king, we can know the future that awaits us. We're being given an opportunity right now to join in his suffering. Let us run to him. Let us cling to him. And know that even if you don't have the words to pray, you don't know what to say or do, he is right now interceding for you and for us in the heavens.